The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. We praise you this morning, uh, our Heavenly Father, for new mercies. We need your grace every day. Uh, Our sins mount, um, but your mercy is ever deeper. And so we pray uh, both for the forgiveness of sins, but also for the cleansing uh, of your spirit. Uh, We pray you'd open our eyes uh, to see wonderful things in your word and transform us ever more into your son's likeness. Bless us, we ask in his name. Amen. Okay, so continuing this series, on to session three now of um, Adam and Eve in exile. What does it mean to be men and women east of Eden? Um, pretty quickly, I want to go into discussion, but in order to do so, we just need to make sure we're on the same page from last time. Uh, and so just a brief recap. Uh, we've seen that when God made the world, he did it in this, in this process of forming and filling. The first three days were forming the world, or forming the universe, the sky and the land, the seas and the earth, um, heavens above waters below so the the first three days are forming and then he filled them so he filled the sky with sun and moon filled the water with fish and on we go and all the way through there were these complementary pairs sun and moon sea and sky heaven and earth land and sea and we we keep saying i just want to get this idea into our heads we keep saying that to ask which is better out of the pair or more important is just a just a totally stupid question um sun or moon or sea or air whatever it might be and so it's no surprise when we get to man and woman, although we're one race, a human race, we all um, share the image of God, we've all got a lot in common, it's not a surprise that there are, we are not interchangeable. Um, we are different, we're not identical. So this is all sort of summary of what we looked at last time. Adam's formed from the ground, he's named after the ground, Adamar means the ground and Adam is his name. He's made outside the garden, kind of the garden home. He alone is given directly the command to work, the soil, remember that? charge he's charged with guarding the garden and he when he comes under the judgment of god he's the one who receives the curses directed towards work and that's because he is he is if you like oriented towards imaging god as forming the world eve on the other hand is is oriented towards the filling imaging of god so she's made inside the garden she's named by adam twice first as isha which is kind of like, I was trying to think of a way of doing this in, in English. It's quite hard. It's like, I put man-et or manine. You know how you make like, like George and Georgina? She'd be like man-manina. Um, Jules and Juliet, man-mana. It's like, that's, that's how her name works. She's Isha. And then later she's Eve, which means life-giving. It's to do with, with bringing life. We saw she was made to be a helper to Adam. And we saw that when God speaks to her uh, when he comes in judgment... He speaks to her about curses on the family and marriage. Again, not because Adam isn't in a marriage or isn't to be concerned about the family, but because she, if you like, is the, that is the centre of her world. Uh, we also saw Adam has some authority, seeing him being made first, seeing in his receiving of God's commands and his duty to then speak them on to Eve, and ultimately seeing in the fact that he is held responsible for the fall, not Eve. It's in Adam that all die, not in Eve. Sometimes you get this idea that Christianity blames women for everything. You know, it's women who let sin into the world. But it's, it's the opposite. It's Adam who is ultimately blamed. Of course, Eve's at fault. But Adam is the one held responsible. And what's really significant is that Genesis 1 to 3 is the passage that Paul and Jesus go to when they want to answer questions or teach on issues to do with gender. So it might be marriage. And Jesus says... You know, have you not read and then quotes Genesis 2 so he thinks that although there, you won't actually read many commands in Genesis 1 through 3 
but the patterns set, um, well, set the example that we're meant to follow. Uh, or Paul, when he's trying to answer the question, you know, can uh, women teach and have authority in the church? He'll go back to the fact that Adam is made first. He'll go back to the garden. And the point there is that I think that, that what Paul and Jesus are both saying is if we'd read Genesis 1 through 3 rightly, we wouldn't have all these questions about who can get married and who should marry who and what about leadership in the church. And so that these patterns of Genesis 1 to 3 are really significant. Um, now, my, my, like this, is, this might just be me kind of thing. So, you know, if you're not guilty of this, fine. But what I've, what I've realised about my own reading of Genesis 1 to 3 is that I've taken that pattern for marriage as absolutely mustn't corrupt God's pattern for marriage. Um, and then I've read Paul talking about leadership in the church. Okay, yep. But basically, I haven't really paid much attention to the other, the rest of the shape of the garden, the patterns in the garden, the stuff about Adam orientated towards the ground, Eve towards the family, all that sort of stuff. But if these patterns are foundational, then they really are pretty important. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we, we've seen unity, all made in God's image, all shared dignity, um, but diversity in the making and the mission of men and women. And what I want to do today is go look through the rest of the Old Testament and see that same thing, unity, but also difference, diversity, in the way men and women um, serve God. And that is what it's all about, isn't it? Remember, this is about how do we serve God. This isn't about some sort of gender wars or... I don't know, men keep women in their place or uh, women rise up and show your worth. It's, it's not about fighting and all the rest of it. It's just about how can we lead godly lives as God has called us to. So to get the kind of brain whirring, okay, imagine someone saying this. Um, it's outrageous to believe that it's the mother who ought to sacrifice her career in order to have to care for the children. Why shouldn't it be the dad who has to do that? Okay, that would be a kind of classic. You know, paternity leave now, who's going to take it, mother or father? Um, what, you hear that, what do you say? Okay, what, what would you say? You might say, I agree. <laughs> you, might, you might say, I disagree. Over to you, though. Just as that question is phrased, have a chat around the table. How would you respond? Okay, we're going to have lots of discussions today, so I'm going to keep us moving. Um, and we're not going to, yeah, we're not going to have time for loads of feedback every time. A um, couple of things you might have thought about, I guess. Um, what is this whole idea of patterns? So, um, hopefully, we've got across by now that the, the patterns of Genesis 1 and 2 are Eve, the, the wife and mother, orientated towards the family, and Adam towards work. Now, at this point, you might say, well, okay, the patterns, but, you know, just patterns, isn't it? Um, well, yes, and this is something each family is going to have to decide for themselves, okay? So it's not going to be, you know, me micromanaging families. And, but um, if someone was to say, well, I can see the pattern of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a man and one woman, but it's a pattern, there's some flexibility, um, you know. Then you'd be a bit like, mm, no, that, that doesn't work. You can't, have pat- you can't have flexibility there. So what you've got to work out is whether there's flexibility in, in that pattern as well. Um, so... At this point, let me, let me say something that's been really important for the rest of the series. Um, there are some series we teach where I will say things that I flat out think you have to believe. Okay? So you have to believe there is one God in three persons. You have to believe Jesus died for your sins. Okay? Absolutely. No wiggle room. No, like, well, yeah, but I would sort of... There are other series where, where there are principles 
but the very specific application of them, you're just going to have to, each individual family or couple or whatever it is, have to work out for themselves. So you might teach them money. Okay? We have to be good stewards of money. We have to be generous. But it's not my job to stand at the front and say, by the way, iPhones are too expensive, um, uh, but Android's okay, or you know, whatever it might be. Okay? That, that's, that's micromanaging. Um, now, on this series, what I feel really conflicted on, I, I think it's a tremendously important topic, really, really much more than I'd really thought about before. Um, and I don't want it to be so sort of anodyne, bland, this series, that I just sort of never say anything. And any time we get near anything, it's a bit like, mm, I just say, oh, well, you know, whatever. So I, I am going to make some suggestions, but, but I want you to hear them in the right way, as it were. Not, you must do everything I think on this particular kind of specific issue. And I'll try and flag when I think something is really first order, um, and when something is more, well, if you're like, here is me in front of you working something through from my opinion, but I'm not trying to... Does that make sense in terms of kind of the different levels of... Um, so on this one, on this one, I, I would say that I, I do think all things being equal, it, it's, it is the sort of, um, the division of labour that the mum is orientated towards bringing up the kids and the home and the family, and the dad is out towards um, work and the world. Now, instantly, you can think of all sorts of exceptions. What if there's an illness? What if there's a disability? What if I had a friend who married a, um, someone who was a refugee and he couldn't work? And Yeah, 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 okay. F- fine. <laughs> but all things sort of being equal. Those do seem to be the patterns, I think. And one of those sort of, you know, I, okay, I wrote the question that way, but one of, you sort of hear that idea, don't you? You know, why, you know, why should, not said from Christians, but you know, why should a woman have to sacrifice her career to look after children? One of the things going on there is it's a horrible sacrifice to have to give up work to look after the children, as if that's second best. Whereas actually, of course, it's not second best. It's not second best in God's economy, by any stretch of the imagination. And it should be second best in ours. So one thing no one has ever said um, to me is, why, on your stupid Christian views... Why doesn't the man get released from work to raise the children? Why is it the woman who gets to, to, to stop her, her career in the workplace and, and go and look after the kids when they're little? Why doesn't the man get to do that? It's so unfair. And the fact that we never ask that question shows how much we value out there working, earning money over bringing up young children. Do you see? It, it just, that question never comes up, does it? Um, so... Uh, this is not me saying it's an absolute rule, but I do think there, it is a pretty strong pattern in Scripture. And it's very hard to think of examples in Scripture where it's the other way around. We'll see this a few times, but you, know, you, you can... Yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's almost impossible to think of an example where you get a stay-at-home and dad in, in Scripture who's sort of in charge of the home and the mum is out there working. I, maybe there's one I've missed, but I can't think of any. So, anyway, something you to think about in your own um, specific situations. Let's move on to the Old Testament. Um, this book, by the way, I think is really helpful. Whoa, it's not going to help me. Um, Kevin DeYoung, Men, Women, and the Church. If you want a small book, it's about 120 pages. Um, Thanks, Ben. Really helpful on these sort of questions. Well worth having a, a read of. Um, he talks about prescriptions about gender. So those are kind of rules. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. One Timothy T. Um, prescriptions, principles, and patterns. So we've looked at some principles in, in Genesis 1 and 3. And we're going to look at some patterns in the Old Testament now. Um, not every pattern is binding, obviously. Not everything you see someone do in the Old Testament you copy. But as you sort of build up the whole canvas, 
it perhaps starts giving you some sort of indications as to how to make wise decisions. Um, so let's start looking at unity first. Unity in the mission of men and women in the Old Testament. Okay, just as we were made in God's image, we equally bear the image, we equally called to serve him, all the stuff we looked at last time. We see as we read on, both are, men and women are included among God's people. And neither are second-class citizens. Not one's more valuable or, or um, silver medal to gold. That's not the case in all religions, by the way, is it? Okay, that is something Christianity brings to the world, that there is equal value. And we, don't, we, we want to be not ashamed of that. Today people talk about, oh, it's obvious we've got human rights, equal value. But that, that has not been obvious to most societies by any means. That is a Christian teaching. Uh, both pray, worship, offer sacrifices. Think Hannah praying, you know, pouring her heart out at the beginning of Samuel, Miriam. And in fact, Miriam is an example of a prophet. You get some female prophets. You obviously get male prophets, we know that. But you get some, it's much, much rarer, but you get some female prophets. Miriam prophesies. Um, Deborah, uh, this uh, woman Hulda, perhaps less well-known. And both are used in significant ways to further God's kingdom. So again, b- background tables, uh, well, this is a hugely open question, but what stories can you think of where God used women to significantly... Um, advanced his, his plan. And if you think of a story, what kind of, yeah, what implications might you be able to draw from them? Okay, I know there's millions, okay, so don't try and cover everything, but if you think through Genesis Exodus, just, just try and brainstorm some times when God has significantly used women to follow his, to have to forward his plan, and think what you might draw from those, those sort of stories. Back over to you. Okay. Um, now, there's millions of women in the Old Testament, aren't there, who get used significantly by oh, God. Absolutely millions. Couldn't possibly cover them all. Um, I think of Deborah, one of the judges, prophetess, we mentioned earlier. Um, and, um, well, yeah, the whole story of Deborah. <laughs> but Barak, Barak wishes out and won't go without Deborah. So Deborah says, okay, I'll come with you. But, you know, the glory, glory's not going to go to you anymore. It's going to go to this woman, Sisera. Oh, sorry, Jael. Um, Jail is another woman. This baddie Sisera attacks. Barak beats him. Um, Sisera runs away. Jail, who's a, a woman living in the tents, invites him into her tent and then buries a tent peg through his head. Okay? There you go. Um, uh, um, I can never say this guy's name. Zelophehad's daughters. Remember that one? But, you know, where they're rising up, the land's going to be taken away and they rise up and they um, make the case and they save the land for their family. Um, anyway, Esther. Ruth, I mean, like, there's just millions, aren't there? Um, and I think you can draw some implications, can't you? Um, so these women are not just sort of sitting in the background, never talking, never taking initiative. Um, they're not weak and helpless, take something to bury a tent peg through someone's head. Um, they're often very brave. A classic one, actually, is Exodus 1 and 2, the early days of Moses, where um, Zipporah and Pua, the, uh, the Hebrew uh, midwives, Stand up to Pharaoh. I mean, that's insane. Insanely brave. Um, think of Esther standing up to Xerxes, Abigail to her husband. So, you know, I don't, I don't, sort of, um, I don't want this to be kind of, uh, what's the word, like, token or whatever. But although I think the sad is 90% of, the, of the, the named people in the Old Testament are male, 90% and 10% female, just are named, um, clearly both male and female are being used in the forwarding of God's plan. And again, many, not all, but many are in that wife-mother wife, role. Um, so what we expect with the patriarchs, 
You know, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, okay, hugely significant. Just because they're not leading the nation or (laughs) they're playing a massively important part in God's plan. Uh, They're overseeing households. Okay, sometimes you hear this sort of thing, well, um, I mean, again, this, this is the kind of thing I actually I don't hear very often, but people say that Christians say, never actually heard a Christian say it, but, you know, um, no, no woman is ever, ever allowed to tell any man what to do. Okay, it's just, just not true. Okay, women running households are clearly telling people what to do all over the place. Um, yeah. So, um, there's huge unity, both men and women. I haven't bothered to sort of tell me some stories where men are used, okay? I'm, I know you can do that too. But there is diversity too. And fundamentally, leadership of God's people is given to various men during each era. Not all men, but given to various men during each era. Patriarchs, very obviously. Think of the story of Genesis. It follows, doesn't it? You know, from after Adam, you've got Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 brothers. They lead the family. God makes a covenant with each successive son to head up the family. Many of them are shepherds and farmers for a living, as it were. As the story develops, so we get to um, Israel being established more formally at the, at the Exodus. Obviously, Moses is the, the great shepherd of the people. But then a priestly class, the, the church leaders, are this tribe of the Levites, or come from the tribe of the Levites. They're charged with leading the worship of God's people. Okay, so they, they oversee the tabernacle worship and the temple worship later. They oversee the sacrifices. They apply the cleanliness laws. That's a great part of their job. And they teach. Okay, they've got a teaching role. They're the teachers, the, the pastors, if you like, of the Old Testament. And that was exclusively male. I'm thinking about the kings. Uh, from Saul on, onwards, God appoints kings to rule over his, Israel uh, to protect them. It's part of the king's duty. You've got to protect his people, provide for them. Uh, he's the, the, the ultimate shepherd. Uh, all an extension, of course, of Adam's rule in Eden. And again, that is a male role. It's, you know, David doesn't pass the throne to whoever his oldest child happens to be, be they male or female. It goes down... The male line. And also, we, I think this one's probably more easily missed. Um, all the way through, really from Genesis through to well, the whole of the Old Testament, um, elders oversee God's people. Um, there are elders who oversee the families, the clans, and the tribes, you know, as in Reuben, Gad, Issachar, um, of Israel. Um, you have elders over cities. Um, elders are not a New Testament invention. You know, sometimes when we talk about... Um, the doctrine of the church, how do we know who should look after the church or how it should be led? We sort of only go to the New Testament. But actually, elders all the way through uh, have had this role. And again, they're always uh, male. And part of the reason for that is that the, that the nation, uh, which is kind of quite modern language really, but anyway, is, it's just an extension of the family. Okay? So you'd expect that if, as is the church really, um, you'd expect that, that if, um, uh, if it's the, the, the husband... The father who's going to lead the family. Well, that makes sense when you stick a load of families together and call them a clan, or stick a load together and call them a city, or stick an old load together and call them a, a nation, a people. Well, it's not surprising um, that it remains a male role. What's a bit hard is when you get to ordinary, I've called ordinary men and women in the Old Testament. Um, clearly, the Bible doesn't give us a kind of social history of God's people. We know, we know a reasonable amount about, amount about the famous people. Okay, the, the kind of the star turns, as it were. Um, but, but much less about just you know, people like you and me, just Joe Schmo, Israelites, part of God's people, living in you know, Benjamin or whatever, 800 years BC. 
Um, usually, when you get a little snapshot, unsurprisingly, you see things working out along the pattern of, of Eden. Um, you know, the shepherds are, uh, sorry, the patriarchs are shepherds. Um, although we'll come back to that in a sec. Um, you can sort of, you know, uh, you know what Jesus' dad did for a living. The carpenter. You, you don't know what Jesus' mum did for a living, presumably because she's just, she's doing what you'd expect her to be doing, which is raising up Jesus and the other brothers. Um, John the Baptist's dad was a priest. What did mum do? Well, we're not told. It's probably not that she also popped out of the house at eight o'clock in the morning to go work at Tesco or whatever. Like, yeah. but, but there's no explicit detail, is there? Um, what we do see is that the Mosaic Covenant, which sort of overarches the Old Testament, um, protected women by giving them fathers and husbands. So women very clearly in those days lived in a household. Uh, they didn't just sort of leave home at 18 and go and, like we do and go off to uni and start a career or whatever it might be. Um, everyone lived in households. Everyone, that is. Men and women. But, but the daughters were under their father's protection until marriage. Um, again, you can go all over the place in, in, the, in the Old Testament law to see that. But um, one, of the kind of, one obvious place is that when, um, uh, when a, a, a man wants to marry a woman, he gets to go to the father. There's a price to be paid. Um, he, it's not just sort of the two of them sorting it out on their, on their own. And then a new household is formed. So what you don't get under normal circumstances is loads of individuals just going off and living on their own, as we do nowadays. But of course, given that life is now east of Eden, so we're not in paradise anymore, things go wrong. People are widowed and orphaned, and that's seen as a, a tragedy, obviously. Uh, so think Ruth, okay? Uh, when, just, not his life, but when, um, uh, when she loses uh, her, essentially her father-in-law, um, and together with Naomi, they head back towards the, the promised land, um, she has to glean in the fields to survive. Okay, so she doesn't think, oh, well, I'm just a woman, I'm not allowed to go and glean. No, she, you know, I, I'm out there working in the fields to survive. Although even then, the whole thrust of the book of Ruth is this, you know, Ruth's search, you know the provision of a family, a kinsman redeemer, a husband, ultimately, uh, for Ruth. So she's not a kind of, hey, I'm an independent woman, I'm going to stand on my own two feet now. Um, she is rightly trying to provide for a family, um, given the tragedy that's befallen them. But still, the whole thing ends in a wedding. It's not massively kind of... I don't know what the right word is. PC or whatever. And of course, this is worth saying, it's not all clear-cut, because society wasn't structured like ours is today. It's a big kind of caveat. Um, There isn't the same um, work is something you do away from home division that we have in our society, sort of post-industrial revolution, essentially. So, you know, we think about walking out the door and going off to work. Um, that just isn't really a category for most of Israel. Most of them would have farmed their own land, subsistence, and all the rest of it. Uh, so one example of that, I talked about shepherds earlier. Uh, daughters seem to have helped out looking after their father's flocks. So think of Rachel, okay, when, um, yeah, when she meets her husband-to-be. She is watering her, her father's flocks, or Zipporah, Moses' wife-to-be, similarly. And again, that seems to change at marriage, but um, yeah, we, we can't, we shouldn't imagine Israelite society to be exactly like ours in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of kind of the, the, the work-home division. So although I've spoken about an orientation towards um, the soil, 
work providing and an orientation towards the family, children, marriage. Um, those aren't necessarily kind of different geographic zones, and it's not there's no overlap whatsoever. Which brings us... Oh, we're talking time, aren't we? Brings us to Proverbs 31. Um, Joe Proverbs 31, just, just flick there as we close. We won't do it as a discussion. Let's just wander through it. There's all sorts of things you could say <coughs> about this passage. <coughs> Excuse me. Certainly she's uh, uh, this woman who fears the Lord, this excellent wife from verse 10. Certainly she's a, a personification of wisdom in just terms of the whole the way the book of Proverbs works. But that doesn't stop it having sort of application to more directly to, uh, to wives. Sometimes you, you hear this line, look, Proverbs 31, she's, she's, no, she's no boring stay-at-home mum. She's a going-out-there businesswoman, career-driven, off she goes, all the rest of it. Um, again, I think both, both, both those positions would be a, mis, a misunderstanding of what's going on. Just, just let me read it. Let, let's just see what we see when we go through. An excellent wife, who can find? So first of all, here's a wife. Okay, not an independent woman, off on her own, don't need a man. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and you have no lack of gain. She does him good. Eve was there as a helper to Adam. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. So, okay, she's not sitting at home crocheting. Okay, she's being productive. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night, provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Okay, she's got a household she oversees. She's overseeing the food side of it as well. She considers the field and buys it. Look, she's doing some, some trading here. Again, she's not off to KPMG in a business suit. But she, but she is, you know, in order to oversee the household, it seems like a fairly decent farm set if you've got fields and things. Um, she's quite capable and happy and willing and right to go. And, oh, yeah, that, we'll add that one to our, our farm. Um, let's pop a vineyard there. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She re- perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Okay, she's, she's selling some of this stuff. Um, her lamp doesn't go out at night. She's hardworking. She puts her hands to the distaff, but her, ha- her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor, reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband's known in the gates where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. There you go. She's making stuff and selling it, making money. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She, look well, she looks well to the ways of her household. Okay, so again, there is that. She, you see what both is going on. She's making money. She's buying fields. But she, but she looks well to the ways of her household. She's still got that kind of household orientation. They're not seen as contrasts. Her children rise up and call her blessed. So there is, if you like, a, re- a, a, a real Eve. Okay, I know she's idealised, and I know none of us can live up to that and all the rest of it, but there is a, a, a real Eve. Um, she, is, she is, if you like, mistress of her household. That doesn't mean she doesn't also make money. She isn't innovative. She doesn't, doesn't mean she doesn't give commands to the household, running a farm that big, you need people under you, and all the rest of it. Okay, so 
we can't use her to say, oh, um, Proverbs 31 says all women must sit at home and sort of do nothing other than change nappies. Neither can we use Proverbs 31 to say, look, career woman, don't give me any of that nonsense about staying at home. Okay, it, just, it just doesn't fall into either of those stereotypes at all. Uh, rather, she is um, the, the personification of a, a productive wife. Two things to conclude. Um, I, I hope I've got across enough times. I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is just walk us through stuff we see in the Old Testament, and I'm not yet trying to draw deep conclusions. Okay, we talked about a little bit about the sort of work thing earlier, and children, and who gives up what. But the, the pressure to come to the text with our agenda, these are my questions, how does the Bible answer it, is almost overwhelming. And so I just wanted us to slow down for a couple of weeks and walk through um, Genesis and then the rest of the Old Testament. Um, just in case you're mishearing anything at this stage, okay, this, is not, this is not what you should be taking away. Okay, so don't take away this. It is not that only married people can be male, properly male or properly female, or only people with children can be properly male or properly female. Okay, that, that is not the conclusion to draw. But we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There is a huge sort of swathe of patterns that run through the Old Testament that we do want to have as our data when we start making our decisions about the kind of the minutiae. And that really is, is, is the hope. That as we paint this canvas, it'll help when we come to our questions. Okay, we're just not living in Israel. But I don't think any of you run farms or household vineyards or whatever. And we're going to come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Perhaps, for example, you've been converted from a non-Christian home. Uh, perhaps you really want to be married, but it just hasn't happened. Perhaps you, you are married, you really want kids, but the Lord hasn't given them at this stage. Perhaps you're very happy single. Uh, perhaps, um, well, there's all sorts of circumstances, aren't they? Um, the Bible isn't going to always give you loads of rules to tell you exactly what to do in any one circumstance. But, but when we come with our 21st century questions... Should my gender make any difference to my career choice? Um, should I bring my boys and my girls up differently if I've got kids? Um, how should marriages work? Who should lead churches? Who can lead community groups? Um, should I keep on working if I've got kids? All those sort of questions that we, that we have. We want to address them with as much of the sort of Bible big picture as possible because what we're not going to be able to address them with most of the time is one verse that tells me the answer. So that's why these patterns that launched in the garden and and spread throughout the Old Testament um, are so important, because they help us then deal with the minutiae of our own sort of weird situations living in 21st century needs. Um, That's quite enough for me. Let me pray, and then we'll turn to church around. Really happy to to chat afterwards, as ever, um, or after the service. But let's stop for now. Father God, we want to be godly men and women. Uh, not going beyond what you've said in Scripture, but also not stopping short of what you've said in Scripture. So pray that anything I've said that is untrue would fall away. Pray that anything that is true that we've discussed this morning uh, would bear fruit in our lives. Um, teach, correct, rebuke, encourage us, we pray, uh, in order that we might live fruitful lives in your service. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.